Um, I am not uh, traditionally observant, uh, but I think of my grandparents' sacrifice to come here, and I think of how they worked so hard to come here to give that gave me the choice of how I want to live my life and uh, to be free in that way. And perhaps it wasn't even in a way that they intended. Want to listen to this Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime and Academia episode ad-free? Head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room to listen to all of our podcast episodes without any ads. You get access to our video episodes, our bonus episodes, and even more exclusive content, including merchandise. It only starts at $5 a month, so head on over to our Patreon. Again, it's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash ivory tower boiler room. And while you're at it, you know what would be such a help is if you could rate and review the ivory tower boiler room on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And make sure that you follow us and share out our podcast to all of your friends. It truly does help. And I want to thank you all. It means so much that you're listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I hope that you enjoy this episode. Just a brief message before what I know you all are going to absolutely love as an episode today. I have such a great guest. There are two book clubs going on during this spooky season. Happy spooky season, everyone. I am hosting the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Book Club. We are reading Parachute Women by Elizabeth Winder. It is all about the women behind the Rolling Stones and even the invention of rock and roll's success. And then Mary DePippi, the host of True Crime and Academia, is reading Haunted, Asylums, Prisons, and Sanatoriums by Jamie Davis. So to join both book clubs, you just have to go to patreon.com backslash ivory tower boiler room. It's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com backslash ivory tower boiler room. Each book club has its own membership level, so each is $4. If you want to join both book clubs, then join the ITBR professor level instead of like joining each book club separately because for $10 a month, not only do you get both book clubs, you also get all of our bonus audio and video episodes and also our entire video and audio episode catalog, including this episode ad-free. So can't wait to see you all. The deadline to join both book clubs is October 20th. That's because Mary and myself, we have to just make sure that we coordinate the private Zoom a session that we'll have with all our book club members. So I can't wait to see who's in the book club and get your hands on Parachute Women and Haunted um, for our book clubs. And then also I'm now offering consulting. So everyone out there, if you know someone who has college admission essay questions, they're not sure where to start with the undergraduate college process. They have financial questions about college. I was lucky enough and had a lot of financial conversations about um, loans and I actually don't didn't have any loans from my college experience and I was able to get scholarships so I can help you with that. I can help with graduate school questions, um, graduate school thesis editing, dissertation editing, 
uh, podcast questions, help with your podcast, starting a podcast, social media branding questions. I'm here for your services. So my initial consultation fee is only $30 and it's a one hour Zoom. So head to patreon.com backslash ivory tower boiler room and you'll see that consultation option. Okay, without further ado, here is today's episode. Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I first wanted to tell you all that this episode was filmed before the current Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I want to first open up with Amanda Gorman's poem, which puts into poetry what I really can't verbalize right now. Um, because I've tried. I've tried to record this at least 10 times, and I feel like I'm never actually verbalizing um, a message because words right now are not coming to me. I feel heartbroken. I feel so saddened by friends of mine who are not standing up for the importance of recognizing that Jewish people are scared right now, and that is not fake, it is real. And also at the same time recognizing that innocent civilians, Palestinians, and the Jewish people, the Israelis, who are not only Jewish, just to tell you all that, Israelis are not only Jewish, okay? Um, they are Muslim, they are Christian, um, yes, the majority are Jewish, but there's more than just Jewish people who live in Israel. Um, that innocent civilians should not be losing their lives and be used as tools and pawns for tyrannical forces. And I will say that adamantly. I always believe that. I'm never on the side of war. I think that. We need peacemakers, and we need those entering the Middle East right now who are peacemakers. Um, so here is Amanda Gorman's poem. We lay down our arms so that we can reach our arms out to one another. We seek harm to none and harmony for all. Victorious, not because we will never again know defeat, but because we will never again sow division. Perhaps we would crave peace if we'd ever known it. We will lift our gazes not to what stands between us, but what stands before us. We close the divide because we know to put our future first, we must first put our differences aside. I want to recognize that with Aaron's novel, he opens up about his own family's Jewish story, how they faced anti-Semitism and were able to find a better life for themselves that starts in Cuba and ends in America. I have opened up about my own family and their Jewish history. I'm still unraveling it. All I know is that my ancestors did not talk about their Jewish faith because of anti-Semitism. And I have committed myself to telling my family's story and to opening up about it because I want to live in a world where we're free from prejudice, 
you can practice your religion in peace and the Israeli citizens should not be used as hostages right now. That is inhumane and unjust. Hamas is a terrorist organization that does not believe in the rights of Jewish people and in their existence. And I am not ever going to um, back away from condemning Hamas. I adamantly condemn Hamas, okay? I understand and I have so much sympathy and love and my heart goes out to the Palestinian citizens who currently have no food or water. Well, they have food and water, but it is restricted and they are being used and as bartering tools right now. And that is extremely upsetting and inhumane as well. And the bombings that are happening are truly distressing in Gaza. So I feel we can have empathy, peace, love for all individuals who are facing injustices. I will never be on the side of people being treated cruelly or inhumanely, ever. And I also want to just end with, in New York City right now, there are immigrants in shelters, and I've seen videos on Staten Island of American citizens screaming such awful, awful statements towards these immigrants. And I just want to say to those Americans out there who think it's okay to be cruel to immigrants right now, who are just trying to have a better future for themselves, so many of you out there, and this comes up in my interview with Aaron, so many of you out there, how would you feel if your ancestral families who came here as immigrants were screamed at with the kind of anger that you're hurling at these current immigrants? Think of that. Put yourself in others' shoes. I want to adamantly stand for humanity, for justice, for peace, and I don't want wars to continue to happen. I know that that is utopic of me, but we have to have the idyllic peacekeepers among us. And with that, I hope all of you are able to find light in your day today. I know that I didn't say exactly all the words right that I should have said. I know that I probably upset someone out there. I am, All I can do is say I was never going to say probably the exact words you wanted me to say. I'm not going to say specific phrases right now because I just feel rhetoric is so important and I just wanted to come across that my heart goes out to the Israelis and the Palestinians who are unjustly losing their lives. And with that, here is my interview with Aaron Hamburger. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I'm really excited to introduce my guest here, who it's his second time in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I love a repeat guest. So make sure you listen to his other episode. And to reveal who it is, I'm joined with 
just a wonderful creative soul, Aaron Hamburger. He, you might have known him from his story collection called The View from Stalin's Head. It was awarded the Rome Prize by the American Academy of Arts and Letters and nominated for a Violet Quill Award. He's also written three novels. One we're going to talk about in depth, but Faith for Beginners, which was nominated for a Lambda Literary Award. Nirvana is Here, which won the Bronze Medal in 2019, the uh, Forward Reviews Indies Book Awards. That's the podcast episode you need to listen to. Um, and Hotel Cuba, which recently in 2023 was just awarded the Lambda Literary uh, with the Jim Duggan's PhD Outstanding Mid-Career Novelist Prize. Okay. And he's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Village Voice, the Chicago Tribune, and I could continue on and on. But I hope everyone, Aaron, listens to your first episode with us because I went through the depth of your career. But now I think we can just jump right in. What do you think? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's so nice for you to be back here. I'm thrilled to be back. Thanks for having me. So I was just saying to Aaron before we went live that I really just love how much you've been on the road with Hotel Cuba. And it seems like it's a different media approach than Nirvana is here. Or, you know, how do you balance maybe how Nirvana is here was received compared to Hotel Cuba as a starting question? Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting that uh, this book has really been reaching, I think, the people who are fans of Nirvana is here, but also people who uh, weren't aware of that book and are interested in the Jewish family immigration story uh, that is part of um, Hotel Cuba. Uh, it was funny, I was talking with a friend of mine and I was like, you know, I I think Hotel Cuba is like, you know, it, it's got this Jewish family story, but it's also a queer book. And, and my friend was like, oh, yeah, it's a very queer book. And I'm like, yes, it is a very queer book, you know, um, but it but it has both. And what I like is that um, there was a time in which if you addressed Jewish content and queer content, that you are perceived as only appealing to people who are both queer and Jewish. But now I think we live in a time where um, if you address queer content and Jewish content, you can appeal to both readers who are interested in queer subjects and readers who are interested in Jewish subjects. So it's additive rather than sort of, you know, uh, I don't know what the word is, but like reductive, which I think it was that way um, 20 years ago. So uh, so that's been really exciting. So, you know, I've, I've, you know, there's been press that's been in like the gay press about this book. And then there's also been press in the Jewish press. And I've I've done events, uh, you know, like at the Museum of Jewish Heritage in New York City related to this book. Um, and then also, you know, just uh, got to, you know, geek out with like, you know, uh, gay book clubs and um, and Jewish book clubs and, and really everybody. So and it's interesting as the book has come out, so many people have said to me, oh, I have a family story, too. And like, I wish I'd written it down. Um, Everybody can relate to it, uh, I think, because everybody has that kind of family story. And, and very many of us who live in America have that coming to America story. Um, and I think one of the things that the book brings to light is how particular those stories are and also um, how modern in a certain way that they are. 
Um, so when I was investigating this story, I mean, um, I think, you know, I was inspired by finding a photograph of my grandmother in full male drag in 1922. Um, and I started to investigate, well, why was she wearing that? And what, what were the circumstances around that? And I was amazed by how often queerness kept coming up when I wasn't looking for it. It just was part of the times. Um, and so, you know, I think that's particularly interesting these days when there's all this debate about wokeness and, you know, we're changing our, you know, view of the past to fit contemporary values. It's like, no, 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 no. These things were always here. Um, it's just that we were, our eyes were not always open to them. So I was delighted that I could tell the story that was, you know, both in that mold of the traditional sort of like Jewish immigration story, but also with this more uh, contemporary spin where we can, you know, look at it with eyes open and see the variety of people that were there and the variety of feelings and experiences that they had. Well, and to bring up an analogous literary comparison, Angels in America with Tony Kushner, I'm not sure how many have brought this up when you're doing all of your um, lectures and discussions, but I just remember vividly in Angels in America, Tony Kushner has that moment when it's the whole generational Jewish story that's being told. Actually, that's the beginning, is um, the rabbi opens up the play. And I think, like you're saying, though, there's such a long history of queer Jewish characters. I mean, call me by your name, even Andre Asiman, all the characters are Jewish. Um, mm -hmm. And the queerness is really spelled out, but maybe Ari Silverman in Nirvana is here, that whole Me Too complexity with his ex-husband. You know, I'm not trying to paint the picture that because of that sexual harassment, it turned off certain readers, but I think it is a different vein, like you're saying, than two sisters in Hotel Cuba who have this immigration story of trying to get into America and then they get blocked because of anti-immigration laws and have to, right, settling in Cuba, you don't hear that narrative a lot, but there's such, like you bring to bear, Cuba, mm -hmm. Brazil, I'm thinking of Clarice, uh, Clarice Lispector being a Jewish writer in Brazil. And um, I think even in the Avita musical, they touch upon Jewish immigrants in Argentina. Mm -hmm. So, right, that whole South America journey. So it is, it's such an interesting narrative. And for those who are hearing you, they're just really, it's resonating, those immigration yeah. narratives. And, you know, and queerness and, and the shtetl is like uh, not at all like antithetical. So how many of your listeners have heard of Yentl, you know, mm -hmm. uh, which is based on an Isaac Bashevis singer story, became a Barbara Streisand movie, but, you know, about, you know, a girl who cross-dresses as a boy mm -hmm. so that she can study in, you know, religious school. Um, and Isaac Bashevis Singer also wrote a story uh, about a gay couple uh, that runs away from they, two men. They leave their wives and they go to the big city and move there together so that they can live together um, as a married couple. And one of them actually uh, dresses and lives as a woman uh, and is the wife in the couple. And the other one is, is the male identified uh, half of that couple. And this is a story that was written in the 70s by a Yiddish American writer. I mean, you know, um, this stuff was definitely around and, and in the zeitgeist. You know, it's interesting, um, you're talking about Argentina and Jewish immigration there. 
Um, you know, one of the untold stories about Jewish immigration uh, across the Atlantic, we always think of the Ellis Island story. And indeed, mm -hmm. my grandfather experienced that. He came from Eastern Europe, got in through Ellis Island. He was actually uh, one of the last people who got into Ellis Island before the immigration laws changed in 1921. Uh, but then, you know, the United States, they were afraid of infiltration by Jewish communists when in fact the Jews who were coming from the Soviet Union were fleeing communism. I mean, it's just so ironic. So they created these laws to keep them out. And the steamboat companies were losing so much money because they were making all this money from uh, immigrants paying their passage to the United States. Mm -hmm. So um, they said to the immigrants, hey, why don't you go to Cuba? Why don't you go to Mexico? Why don't you go to Argentina? And so those became um, big places where immigrants would go instead of the United States. Um, and originally in the law that was passed in 1921, there's a carve out that says, if you can establish residency in Cuba, uh, Central America, South America for one year, you can then get into the United States and you will not be subject to these quotas. So a lot mm. of people followed that path. And what's interesting is as this book has come out, people have written to me and come up to me and said, oh my God, like I also am like a descendant of immigrants who, who took that path. Um, and so it's so interesting just to hear about this divergent um, path that people took. And what fascinated me uh, about Havana in particular was that it was the center of alcohol tourism. So this was during the time of prohibition and you couldn't get drunk in the United States legally. And the hot song on the billboard charts was I'll see you in Cuba by Irving Berlin, which was the theme of it was let's go to Cuba and get drunk because we can't get drunk in the United States. So all these American tourists are descending on Havana, doing alcohol tourism and engaging in every kind of debauchery that you can imagine. So live sex shows and you know, just think Mardi Gras on steroids. That's what it was like. So imagine like this young woman coming from a, you know, very secluded shtetl in the middle of Russia, you know, with winter and snow and then the mud of summer and suddenly hot, sultry Havana and the debauchery and the drinking and everything that's going on in the clash of cultures and what that must have been like. Um, and then, you know, you were mentioning Me Too. The story has a Me Too element to it as well, because she is the victim of um, sexual violence and it's a secret uh, that she has to keep to herself, but is haunting her and hanging over her as she's trying to make her way through this uh, very strange uh, and exotic world to her. Yeah, well, and I thank you for bringing up that liberatory aspect that you just so nicely lay out throughout the thematic element of your novel. And it's so interesting because a very New York Jewish immigrant tale on the stage, I think of is Guys and Dolls, which is set in the 1920s to 30s, um, sometime in between. But it's there's all these liquor laws. And then where do they go? But Cuba and Havana. And like in the movie, that's where she's drinking out of the coconuts. And I mean, she's not Jewish, uh, Sarah Brown, but mm -hmm. um there's that whole just the gambling and I think of Atlantic City and Prohibition and Boardwalk Empire and Irving Berlin actually vacationed in Atlantic City. So like when you brought up Irving Berlin, it was very like that that's all part of this zeitgeist and part of the um, cultural explosion 
the liberatory themes because you know wouldn't you say how many when you're talking about your book Aaron do they bring up ragtime or I feel like ragtime would be like E.L. Mm. Doctor's narrative we always think of that turn of the century we think of Fiddler on the Roof which is turn of the century right. it's right always I think there's even the musical rags it's always this turn of the century Jewish narrative of Ellis Island but mm -hmm. like Emma Lazarus even writing that poem, The New Colossus, for the statue um, right. is all right into the 1900s. But yeah. the World War One aspect right after World War One, I, I feel isn't really um, a cultural representation in our TV, films, musicals, novels, um, you know, so like why was that so important because of your biography to yeah. look into? So, uh, you know, a couple of things, you know, there was a huge surge in immigration that happened from about 1900 to 1920, which was in part why these new restrictive immigration laws came into force. Um, but what's interesting to me is, first of all, how these laws shaped the debate about immigration going forward, even to today. I mean, even though the laws were changed uh, in the 1960s from what they were in the 20s. They, they, they did govern the United States during World War II when like all these refugees from Europe were trying to get away from the Nazis and come here and were turned away. And like it was the, on the basis of these laws that they were not admitted and people, you know, and also they created a kind of isolationist and um, anti-immigrant or they solidified this anti-immigrant ethos into law um, that we can still feel the effects of that in, you know, as late as like 2017 with the Muslim ban. I mean, the the way that these laws were structured in 1921, it was like, okay, we can't say no Jews in America, but what we can do is we can ban immigration from countries where the immigration is like 85% Jewish. What did Trump do in 2017? Same thing. We can't say no Muslims, but we can ban immigration or severely curtail it from these countries where it's pretty much like a Muslim population that's yeah. that's coming here. And that really was sort of the drive for me in writing this book. So I um I was with a group of right there was a group of writers that met in DC in 2017 for the AWP convention. And it was right after the election, and people were fired up and they wanted to do stuff. And so a group formed to knock on the doors of every senator on Capitol Hill to advocate for progressive causes. And nobody took Michigan. Um, I no longer live in Michigan, but I grew up there and I'm from there. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll take the Michigan one. So I, it was right around the time when I found this picture of my grandmother in full drag in 1922. She was an immigrant. She came by the path you know, via Cuba, as I mentioned. Um, so I brought this picture with me to Capitol Hill, and here I was in the office of Senator Debbie Stabenow with all the professional lobbyists in their suits and their vinyl, you know, their folders and their, you know, they're, they're all professional, you know, and there's like me, the dopey writer, you know, and I, I'm in line with them. And then it's my turn. And I, I went in, you know, to the office with the senator and I said, hello, you know, uh, I let me tell you the story of my grandmother. She immigrated to Michigan you know, years ago, and here's her story. Um, and I want you to support the rights of immigrants today in her name. And the senator said, oh, I agree with you 100%. And I thought, boy, that's the easiest lobbying job I ever heard of. So I said, well, um, what can I do to support you? 
And she said, you're a writer. Tell your grandmother's story. Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I'm so excited to shout out the Gay and Lesbian Review, who is helping to sponsor the ITBR podcast. For all of you out there, the Gay and Lesbian Review is a bi-monthly magazine where you can discover new things about gay and lesbian literature, history, and culture. And the GL Review publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features, such as artist profiles and their popular art memo column. Each issue of the magazine brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme. For example, their September-October issue centers on the theme Cracking the Closet. So, starting in the 19th century, a number of artists and writers found ways to crack the closet by expressing their sexuality between the lines or in the interstices of their work. For example, Ignacio Darnad, who is a friend of the ITBR podcast, he's been on our show, writes all about illustrator J.C. Leyendecker, whose work for Ivory Soap and Arrow Collars gave him plenty of opportunities to draw pictures of well-dressed and at times scantily dressed American men. And you also can find an article by Vernon Rosario, who has been on the podcast, and he talks about the quest for sex in the Middle Ages. So to subscribe, visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Click subscribe. So on their website, go all the way over to the right-hand side, and you'll see the button subscribe. Click subscribe and enter the promo code ITBR50 because you're getting 50% off your subscription to the print or digital edition of the Gay and Lesbian Review magazine. I can't wait for you all to have your copy of the Gay and Lesbian Review magazine and make sure that you take a picture when your magazine arrives or when you're reading it online and tag the GL Review on Instagram and ITBR and we'll share it out in our stories. Enjoy your reading, everyone. And I hadn't really considered that. I, you know, was just there to kind of advocate, um, you know, for the causes I believed in. And, you know, I was uh, winding up. Nirvana is here at that point. You know, I um, was sort of like looking, casting about for like a new project. And I thought, well, I don't know. Let me, let me see what happens. You know, let me just see for fun. Like, okay, well, uh, she's on the ship. She's crossing the Atlantic. What was it like to be on the ship? Like, mm. uh, if people had to wash their hands, were there sinks? Did they have sinks on ships? And, you know, and, and uh, like, what, what was the room like? Where did they sleep? What were the beds like? What did it smell like? Uh, who else was there? And so I started digging around and I found like, it was just so fascinating to me that I wanted to know more. So then I got her across the ocean. I got her to Cuba. It's like, okay, well, when you land at Cuba, like what happens to you? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I just got on this roll and it just kept going. And here, here I was with a manuscript. Well, and what did the Senator say now that Hotel Cuba is out? I, uh, so I actually, I went back to her office and I, uh, she wasn't there at the time, but I dropped off a signed copy and um, she uh, mailed me a handwritten note to say thank you um, oh. and uh, to uh, tell me to keep writing. And I have to say, she has the most beautiful handwriting I've ever seen. I was very impressed by her handwriting. 
Well, and you make no qualms about being progressive. And I know like you even share on your social media activist moments and marches. Um, and what I'm curious about, though, is because, you know, your audience is large, which is wonderful. Like this book is so resonating. I was even saying to Aaron that I listened to his NPR interview, which is everyone out there after this, you should listen. It's eight minutes. Um, but have you had political, I don't want to call them opponents, but right. Have you had those? I'm sure they range in a spectrum, especially um, Jewish Americans. They're not all progressive. Unlike I think there's a stereotype that they're all Democrats, which is not true. Um, because as we know, there's, like the Republican Jewish voters for Israel. And I don't have to get into all that, but <laughs> I'm not on here for you to debate Israel um, at all. But, you know, have you had those of different political beliefs, but your story has just, it's universally registering for them? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. Um, and I mean, I, I have people who answer to your description in my own family. Uh, so, but, um, you know, I, I, I wrote an article, uh, for tablet magazine, a nonfiction article about that was more overtly political. And I did get like a email from like a Trump voter, um, which was like completely incoherent. Like it was just like a grab bag of like word salad of, you know, various positions. It's, it, there was nothing to say. So it was just like, God bless you go on your way. But, um, uh, the, and listen, I, I don't say that my book is only for people who voted for, you know, one way or the other, it's a mm. story. Um, and I hope it, it, uh, engenders compassion for immigrants, you know, on the part of anybody who, who's anywhere on the political spectrum to get people to see, you know, when you leave home, it's for a reason and it's not an easy journey. Um, and it's, and, uh, you know, whatever you think we should do about immigrants, can we do it with more charity? and uh less vitriol um but uh yeah i haven't i haven't had uh, really any uh pushback that i'm aware of uh except once at one event somebody said you know i heard you were advocating for immigrants you know not everybody thinks that way not everybody thinks immigrants are so good you know and i was like oh okay well but nobody has said it to my uh directly to my face so maybe they will i'm waiting for it <laughs> yeah well and the contemporary resonance of your narrative, especially I feel with social class, like, you know, I always don't want to give it all away to everyone out there, but you make no, from the beginning, we know that this is a working class Jewish family, the sisters, like even describing the conditions of the boat journey and the shtetl that they came from. And, um, eventually like where they end up in Cuba it's not that they're able to live a very upper middle class lifestyle right away or even yeah. right at Ellis Island I thought because this is my own family's um history and journey but those from my mom and dad's side who came to Ellis Island was turn of the century it was like 1900 to 1910 um Italian and maybe Sephardic on my dad's side, still hard to tell, but um, definitely some kind of Middle Eastern Sephardic ancestry. But then my mom was Eastern European, Hungarian and Czechoslovakian. 
And they had to have sponsors, right? Like you had to have someone to vouch for you usually yeah. in America yeah. already. Like that's yeah. how it was with my parents' families. Then they had a place to live. And like, it wasn't just you arrive at Ellis Island and they let you in right away. Um, yeah. But it, yeah. you really bring to bear issues of social class. And I think that that's something, even in our contemporary moment, we're not talking openly about. Like we're talking more in binary ways of someone voted for that person or you vote for that person instead of a lot of changes in America right now. It is a immigration centered and it's about, you know, what policies do we have on the table and how do we operate under empathy or, um, you know, the immigrants who are here in America currently, they tend to be from a working class. Like it is related to social class. I mean, maybe I'm generalizing, but even what's happening right now in New York City with those who, um, you know, are trying to get into hotels and then they're having to sleep outside. It's just mind boggling to think this is where we are right now in our country. Yeah, yeah. You know, what's kind of fascinating to me, which I didn't know until I started digging into my story, is that um, so my both my grandparents came from the same uh, village in, in Russia. Um, and when you read the book, you sort of see their their story um, uh, converge. So my grandmother and her family always thought they were like a little better than everybody else because they came from Lithuania. Oh, that wow. there was like, even within this very sort of poor village that they were from, there were these social strata, you know, and also she was the daughter of the cantor. And like, yes, the cantor had to work as a butcher to make ends meet, you know, during the week, but he was still the cantor. And so they were, they were like a little better off than other people in their town. But then, you know, once they get to Cuba, they're really kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel. And then my grand, we have um, recordings of my uh, grandparents telling their immigration stories. And my grandmother says, you know, when she eventually got to New York, she said, when I saw how my sisters were living in New York, I wanted to go back to Russia. So we all think of, well, maybe not all of us, but many of us probably think like, oh, the coming to America story is about they get to the promised land and then like everything is great. When in fact, like, conditions on the Lower East Side were so awful, um, you know, that, uh, and, and by the way, conditions that immigrants live in today are, are often just as awful in different ways, um, that my grandmother would make this statement. And you have to realize for her to say that Russia in the early 1920s was going through a time of intense violence and death and shooting and chaos and famine. And if you see the pictures from that period, people look like victims of the concentration camps. The emaciation is unbelievable. And there was cannibalism going on. I mean, they were starving, you know? So um, that was quite a statement. You know, it was not uh, necessarily like the happy uh, landing. You know, my grandfather had a slightly different story. You were talking about sponsors. He was able to get to um, his family who lived in Detroit and they had like a little, they had a place for him. Um, and they were able to ease his uh, transition. You know, they were a little bit better off. Uh, but on my grandmother's side, it was not that way. Well, um, you know, I think that what we're seeing right now, the um, 
vitriol that some Americans have towards immigrants is yeah. this fear-mongering rhetoric that you bring up in Hotel Cuba. Like, well, I always I, think I, literature... I, no, yeah, go ahead. I just talk about that? So I actually, I went to the National Archives because I was looking for, like, um, the... Um, the people who worked in immigration at the time and what they were, they had people on the ground in Cuba and they were looking for people who were trying to get into the United States illegally from Cuba. And in fact, my grandmother was one of my grandmother paid an American couple to pretend she was their daughter and they went to Key West and then she got arrested immediately when she got to Key West. So I was looking at the records from this time and I found like all these letters from everyday American citizens writing to report on undocumented immigrants. And they were saying, I'm doing this to protect the purity of the American blood pool. We don't want it to get like dirtied by these like terrible, like undocumented immigrants. Um, and they're saying they're taking our jobs. They can't assimilate. They have different values. And it was amazing. Almost every, all of their rhetoric was exactly the same as the rhetoric you hear today that's you know anti-immigrant. You just swap out the nationalities, but it's the same like kind of horrible um, rhetoric. So the fear is the same, and we just switch out the different who's in the in-group, who's in the out-group. You know, you were mentioning like you come of uh, Italian um, derivation. There was a time in this country when like Italians were like, oh, French. French were described as swarthy you know, dark toned skin. They were not white. French were not white. So the definition of whiteness like was very, very narrow. And now it's like, okay, we'll let the French people be white. We'll let the Italian people be white, you know? Uh, but it wasn't always so. Um, so these categories that we come with, that we come up with, that we think are so kind of stable. And so, you know, oh yes, you know, clearly these people belong. These people are Americans and these people are not. Well, you know, go back in the history, you're, you know, you who are saying today, you know, America for the Americans, you would not have been an American 50 years ago or 100 years ago. So uh, just be careful, you know, with, with your rhetoric there. Are you afraid of the dark? <laughs> Sorry, I had to, everyone. It's Dr. Andrew Rimby. Happy spooky season and gothic and horror, just all the vibes. I am so excited to talk about Broadview Press, who you might know helps sponsor our podcast. They're an independent publisher in the humanities since 1985. Did you know they have so many horror novels that you need to get your hands on? They have Frankenstein, of course, by Mary Shelley. They have Dracula by Bram Stoker, one of my favorites. They have The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson, Edgar Allan Poe's Poetry and Tales. Oh, they just have so many gothic novels that you all need to soak your teeth into. Bob your teeth into <laughs> some kind of Halloween metaphor is appropriate there. They also have academic books like Dr. Jeffrey Andrew Weinstock's The Mad Scientist Guide to Composition. So if you're a writing professor out there, you need to get your hands on that. And they also have a gift package called Mystery Horror Sensation, which if you don't know what to choose, just choose the Mystery Horror Sensation gift package. Just a reminder, you get 20% off on broadviewpress.com, link in our show notes. Just use the code IvoryTower, all lowercase. 
Ivory Tower, 20% off all your books on broadviewpress.com. All of them. I can't wait for you all to hear our next Broadview Press guest. It's coming in November. And definitely when you buy one of their horror or gothic novels or books, just make sure you tag us on Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and tag them too at Broadview Press. I know they'll love to share it. Okay, everyone, be careful if you're reading in the dark. I don't want you to get too scared. Turn a light on. Bye, everyone. LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? Or have you been moved by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? Then the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie. In addition to the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog. So you can see all of this on glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Remember, you get 50% off your subscription of the GL Review magazine when you use the promo code ITBR50. That's 50% off your print or digital subscription when you use promo code ITBR50. To learn more about submitting an article for the GNLR, Visit their writer's guidelines. The link is located at the bottom of their homepage. And if you have any questions, email Stephen Hemrick. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N dot H-E-M-R-I-C-K at glreview.org. The GNLR and its readers can't wait to see what you have to say. Yeah, well, and even... In my now finished dissertation, which is nice to be on the other side, but I bring up there's um, queer scholars, especially uh, Siobhan Somerville and Julian Carter. They talk about what you're saying, Aaron, which is how race studies or the category of race and whiteness and blackness and all of these categories we now just take for granted in America, categorization on census reports come out in the Victorian, late Victorian period when sexuality comes out too. Like that yeah. whiteness isn't about skin color when it's a category. It's about, like you're saying, who's the in-group? Like who right. is, I mean, right. At first it was Protestant. It was the Anglo-Saxon. Catholics were on the outs. Yeah. Yeah. Catholics yeah. were on the outs. Even yeah. someone who was Protestant who wanted to marry a Catholic was seen as a sin or um, the Irish were really put under scrutiny. Like you're saying, the target always moves. It's like that you know, game at a carnival where you're trying to hit the target and it just keeps moving on the lever and you it's analogy. always out of reach, right? Yeah. Well, I just yeah. came back from Atlantic City, so that's why oh, yeah. it's on my head, uh, in my head right now. <laughs> but um, I played a lot of arcade games. Uh, so I think though, what's... Just really interesting though, especially maybe I'm getting this um, case wrong with your timeline, but wasn't there something where Edith Wharton, I'm pretty sure Edith Wharton and Henry James were representing the Dreyfus affair or oh. there was something I thought in like the early 20th or maybe now we're like talking 1920s. Anyone out there, you know, they could look it up, but I'm pretty sure there was something yeah. called the Dreyfus Affair, which was yeah, about was Jewish immigration. 
earlier, right? Yeah, that was uh, actually where, so that was in France where a, uh, a French soldier was accused of uh, betraying the, the uh, French uh, during, I think, I believe it was during the Franco-Prussian War. It might've even been in like the late 1800s. I got to look it up. Um, but he was falsely accused just because he was Jewish of selling out the French nation. And then uh, the writer Emile Zola like came to his defense and, uh, you know, he was actually, he was um, found guilty. And I think he was sentenced to like Devil's Island or something. And then Emile Zola like raised a hue and cry. And then um, he event that was eventually reversed and he was um, set free, but it was sort of, it brought to light sort of the shameful anti-Semitism of French society of that period. Yeah, well, and like even with Emma Lazarus, I mean, she, I remember, advocated Zionism and like kind of believed in Israel before it's, you know, it was the homeland or thinking around a homeland that you even draw in Hotel Cuba. You've already brought this up, but to have you expand on it, that mm -hmm. it's not like all Jewish people, you know, necessarily believed the same when it came to immigrants like i mean the german jews i mean emma lazarus was sephardic but like her ancestry differed from german jewish ancestry like otto herman khan who he's um was actually used as the monopoly man like that's where the monopoly man is based off of his you know german banking and mm -hmm. he then has his mansion built on long island that there's so much um, going on around the Jewish culture. And, you know, not just because you're Jewish, does everyone agree with each other? And a lot of it is that intersectionality you've talked about, like gender, social class, you know, the society they're trying to be um, part of, right? I think of the House of Mirth with that. And, you know, can you be part of the in-group? And, you know, how did you deal with, those aspects in Hotel Cuba. Yeah, well, it was fascinating to me that uh, that when you know these immigrants were coming from uh, Eastern Europe to Havana in the early 1920s, there was a Jewish community that was already there, and it was uh, divided. So there were the some of the earliest uh, Jews who settled in Cuba in the 1800s were from Turkey, uh, mm -hmm. and they were Sephardic. And so they were called the Turcos. And so anyone who was Sephardic was a Turco. Uh, and then there were also um, some Jews who came over from the United States uh, to work in the sugar industry, you know, in business. It was a huge, obviously, it, it was a huge business in Cuba. And particularly World War I, the prices of sugar just spiked, you know, because of the demand for the army. And it was like a real boom time in Cuba. So a lot of these Americans were coming over to get rich. Also, there were Americans who uh, came to Cuba to dodge the draft, apparently. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, it was a place, it's a little like that movie Casablanca, you know, it was, it was one of those places where uh, all kinds of things were going on. People were doing all kinds of different uh, business. So anyway, uh, the people who um, came from, uh, who were of Eastern European extraction were referred to as Polish or Polacos. So you have these two groups, the Polacos and the Turcos, and they did not mix. And the Turcos, uh, you know, they uh, believed more in things that we might call like superstition, like the movements of the stars and stuff. And 
Uh, you know, they, they look different, they talk different, they worship different from the Polacos. So there was a lot of sort of like, ooh, what's going on with that group over there? They're a little bit strange. Um, what's interesting is that uh, when these uh, people were showing up from Eastern Europe to Cuba, um, a lot of the, the women in the American Jewish group were worried that they, the, the, uh, the young women would fall into prostitution. And so they formed a group that they called the Ezra Society, which was linked to um, Hayas in America, the Hebrew Immigration Aid Society, which looked out for the immigrants who came off the boats in Ellis Island. And they would meet uh, this Ezra Society. These women would meet the boats as the immigrants were coming off and they would look for young Jewish women and they would help them navigate immigration. They would get them settled. They had a place called the Madelheim, the young women's home, you know, the Yiddish for young women's mm -hmm. home. Um, and they would teach them a little Spanish, give them some pocket money, help them find jobs. Um, you know, interestingly, Cuba went through this boom time during World War I. As soon as the war was over, the sugar prices totally fell because the demand suddenly was gone. So all these overnight millionaires became overnight paupers. And so there was a big economic depression in Cuba. In fact, there are all these boats full of luxury goods from Europe that were docked in Cuba Harbor. And they were just sitting there waiting for people to pay them for their goods and nobody had the money to pay them. So it was hard to find work for these young women who were coming across. Uh, and you know, so a lot of them ended up working in sweatshops in old Havana, uh, which is where you know I believe my grandmother was. And I, she worked making hats like the character in... Um, Hotel Cuba. And when I went to Havana, I was walking all through those old streets of old Havana, trying to imagine, you know, I was walking in my grandmother's footsteps, hoping, you know, anytime I saw a building that looked older than 1922, I was like, my grandmother might have saw, seen this, you know, she might have passed this way. So uh, it was very thrilling. Yeah. Well, was the grad were the Gratzes in Philadelphia? I feel like Rebecca Gratz was part of that. You said H.I., the Hebrew. Ah, yes. Uh, Yes, Hebrew Immigration Aid Society, which still exists to this day, by the way, um, although it's not, you know, it used to be like to you know, meet the boats at Ellis Island. Now they help, they just advocate for immigrants from all backgrounds, from all countries, from all, you know, religions. And they're a wonderful um, sort of uh, charity organization that just works on the behalf of immigrants. So if anybody's looking for a cause to support, that's mm -hmm. like a great uh, vehicle. Yeah. And have you had a chance to speak at the Jewish American Museum in Philadelphia? No, I have not. Oh, OK. Well, I hope they invite you because it's one of my favorite. Oh, um, cool. The New York ones. Yes, as well. I also love the um, Jewish Art Museum on the Upper yes. East Side. Yeah, um, that's one of my favorite museums. They have such great exhibits there. Yeah, they um, had. Oh, my. His name is out of my mind. He's like such a an iconic Jewish modern painter. It'll come to me, Aaron. But, okay. No, maybe a little. He might be. Oh, Modigliani. Oh, oh, Modigliani. But I think he's a little earlier from modernism. Yeah. But I mean, Chagall's wonderful. But Modigliani is my favorite. Okay. okay. Uh, that's a little geeking out over art. Um, but something that I feel, you know, as we're you know, nearing the end of the conversation that you've addressed, but it's something that I'm just so curious about is, I mean, you've talked about anti-immigration, like how it resonates now, but we haven't necessarily addressed anti-Semitism. Like, do you mm -hmm. see these as 
forces that operate similar similarly right now? Or do you think that anti-Semitism, you know, like you've already brought up what happened in Cuba with the Eastern European slash Ashkenazi group and the Sephardic Turkish group. But even right now, I find that there's even just, um, I don't want to say they're competing, but there's differences even with the Persian Jewish community that I know of on Long Island and the Eastern European or Sephardic, like more those who've been here longer in America who think they're more modern and like they all see the Persian Jewish community as more traditional or, you know, they're, you know, more tied to orthodoxy even. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think, I definitely think there are divisions like within the um, Jewish world, like the ones that you uh, point out um, in terms of the links between anti-immigration feeling, anti-Semitism, homophobia. You know, I think that these things are linked, even though these groups might not acknowledge these links with each other. You know, there are certainly there are, you know, homophobic Jews out there. There are certainly immigrants who may have homophobic feelings and there may be immigrants with anti-Semitic feelings and there may be Jews with anti-immigration feelings. You know, like uh, it's interesting how the divide and conquer principle, you know, works to our disadvantage. Like imagine if we could all be allies with each other and sort of say, hey, wait a minute, like we really are all in the same boat here. I mean, and frankly, you know, even the, you know, the sort of dominant uh, in terms of power class, they have a lot of links with us too, you know, as lovers of democracy, like we should all kind of like join hands to a certain extent, because I feel like the real threat to our world right now is is our, our, is the threat of illiberalism and anti-democracy. And it's a worldwide threat. And, and if we don't act, you know, we could see our freedoms uh, taken away. You know, we could, we could live in a society where might makes right and like whoever has the power makes the rules there's no um sense of of justice so um yeah i i do see uh those kind of linkages that that you were uh pointing out you know and i think the power of literature is that it can remind us that like behind these sort of news headlines about immigration or you know um sexual assault or whatever it is there's a human story there's a particular story there's a particular narrative and we all have that we all know people who are queer or who were an immigrant or a victim of sexual violence like they're all around you and you may just you may not know their story i may not have heard their story but it's there um and and you know so many people have come up to me at readings and they've said your story made me go back and want to look at my own family stories. And I always say, do it, do it. If there's one thing to take, I mean, there's a lot of things I hope people take away from the book, but the more people are curious about each other's stories, the more empathetic and compassionate we can be. And like, wouldn't it be a better world if we had more empathy and compassion for each other? Well, and I don't know, how much of a fan of Fiddler on the Roof are you? Like our... Do you enjoy the musical? Because I'm going to be using I'm using it as an example right now. But I'm like, I should ask Aaron how much he enjoys that musical. I actually I wrote this piece called uh, Queering the Fiddler on the Roof Story, which talks a little bit about like growing up as a Jewish kid, you just could not escape Fiddler on the Roof. Like 
you are going to see Fiddler on the Roof, the movie and the theater version, like multiple times. Whether so, it's not a question. It's it's like asking, do you like air? Like it was part of the air, you know. Um, but what I found fascinating was um, my sister in law was saying um, she took her uh, grand her grandmother to see Fiddler on the Roof, and my family also has the story of taking my grandparents to see Fiddler on the Roof, and their um, reactions were, we didn't dress that nice in the shtetl. And not enough mud. <laughs> it looked <laughs> like they thought it was like a prettied up version of, of, of the truth of, of what it was like to, to be uh, in the shtetl. So I found that kind of uh, kind of funny. But obviously it has beautiful music. It's a winning story. Um, I recommend everybody go read, you know, Tevye the Milkman by Sholem Aleichem, which was the source material for Fiddler on the Roof. Um, and also, you know, so many great Yiddish writers, not just Sholem Aleichem, you know, Isaac Bishev is singer and um, on and on and on, you know, go go read that treasure trove of, of literature as well, if you like Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah, well, and something that I just remember, Bach and Harnick, the creators of Fiddler on the Roof talking about was everyone around them in the produce, production team, they were so worried that this was too much of a singular narrative about the Russian shtetl and would it connect to the audience who weren't Jewish? Um, and eventually they realized that this was such a universal tale, like the singularity is what made it universal. Like the more particular a narrative, the more it speaks to a wider audience. And yeah. I found that so interesting because yes, Tevya is so central, but I always see Fiddler as more of a feminist telling of the daughters, each right. coming to their Jewish culture in a new generational way, which makes sense. This is the 60s. It's um, feminist liberation is a, like starting to happen. We have the counterculture movement of the hippies. There's the Vietnam protests. Like, it's just interesting when this musical comes out that I feel Hotel Cuba, you're doing a very it's a similar mission in that it's so particular, but it's also, like you've said, not just Jewish readers are coming to you saying they it resonates. It's resonating with such a wide readership. Yeah, yeah. You know, related to that, there's this apocryphal story that Fiddler on the Roof went to Japan and it was a big hit. Wow. And they asked people, what, you know, why do you like this story? And somebody said, it's so Japanese, you know? Mm. Uh, so I think, yes, the the appeal to, through the particular to, you know, a variety of audience. I mean, that's how we relate. We relate through the particular as human beings. Um, you know, on the theatrical side of things, there's a play that's mentioned in Hotel Cuba that Pearl goes to see called Jewish King Lear. Uh, there was actually a really thriving Yiddish theater scene in, um, you know, in New York at this time. And one of the big hits was this Jewish King Lear, which was an adaptation of King Lear set in the shtetl. Um, but the division between the um, father and the, the daughters was not about land. It was about religion. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the uh, Cordelia character, the good daughter who the father rejects in Jewish King Lear, the reason he rejects her is because she married a non-Jewish guy and she isn't keeping, like she isn't going to synagogue and she isn't keeping kosher. But at the end of the play, he realizes, no, she's the good one and the religiously observant daughters, they're the, the bad ones. Um, and Pearl goes to see this play and it really resonates with her. It's one of her uh, favorites. So just so fascinating when you go back into the history and you read about people's lives, how modern they were and how you know the, the same things that we're wrestling with now, they were wrestling with then. And so maybe we can learn a little something by seeing what people did at an earlier age. Yeah. Well, and how, I mean, 
like you said, you actually have recordings of your grandparents' stories, which is unique and unusual in my opinion. Like it's so lovely and amazing that you actually have this archive. But, you know, have people talked with you who discovered their Jewish roots? Like there was hidden layers. Because I feel like that's actually, I mean, that's something in my family. Like it's Mm -hmm. more that I found it just through generational stories and like the families converted to Catholicism. But then when I did my DNA, it came up as Ashkenazi. But then, you know, the Sephardic doesn't come up on the DNA, but there's also a relative who went to Italy and they said, oh, yes, that last name Cairo, that would have represented someone who was Jewish here in um, in um, Calabria uh-huh. and that they probably moved from Egypt. So it's like, you know, how many come to you with just like the layered history of Judaism? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, not necessarily through this book, but I do have uh, friends who've taken that DNA test and were surprised to uh find that they had uh uh you know jewish ancestry um i have not done it myself but my brother did it and i was like oh what did you find he was like 99.9 percent ashkenazi jew like <laughs> so we, we don't have any you know other we're, we're we're not so mixed um but you know what's interesting to me is we're all a little bit of everything you know, and whether that's true genetically or whether that's true um, spiritually, we have everything in us. Uh, and uh, including all the um, human uh, impulses and inclinations. And one of the things about my grandmother's story was that she was helped by so many people along the way, as is the character Pearl in Hotel Cuba, whom she never saw again. And some of them were Jewish and some of them weren't Jewish but the kindness of strangers, you know, and maybe she never got to go back and thank them and they maybe never were aware of it. Um, But it was so crucial in her being able to eventually make it and, and being able to, in the 1970s, tell her story and have it, you know, on these recordings. Hi, did I mention that it's spooky season? This is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and guess what? I have so many Halloween and fall designs and crafts in my apartment, and guess what? There is a person who's made me so many Halloween, horror, fall-themed items, and her name is Mandy Bengal. She owns Mandy Made It, a craft crochet company. So... Mandy talked to me and said, Andrew, I want everyone out there to know that if they mention ITBR and that they heard my ad, that I will give them a free ITBR t-shirt. So make sure you mention ITBR and order from Mandy crocheted pumpkins that she actually is using cinnamon sticks as the stem, which is a brilliant idea. How cozy. And also filling the pumpkins with potpourri. I already want to wrap myself in a blanket. She has Halloween keychains, other Halloween crochet designs. So how can you reach out to her? Go to her Facebook or Instagram, at Mandy Made It. Reach out to her. She will ship items out to you. If you live in the South New Jersey Philly area, she'll arrange to have you either pick it up or deliver it to you. So Mandy, 
just makes such beautiful crocheted items. And I'm so happy that she supports the podcast. I've known Mandy since I was a child. We were in theater camp together. That's how I met Mary. So the three of us have known each other a long time. Okay, head over to Mandy Made It for your handmade crocheted items for this Halloween and fall. Imagine that you're riding the Turner Classic Movie Great Movie Ride in Hollywood Studios. It's in the 1990s. As you're journeying through the Great Movie Ride, you pass the Wizard of Oz, where all of a sudden you see the Wicked Witch of the West ascend into Munchkinland in a cloud of smoke and flames. Well, that's the memory I have with the Great Movie Ride in classic cinema when I was at Disney in the 1990s as a young boy. And ever since that, I was hooked on classic cinema. Well, my friend Christian Garcia, friend of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, has a podcast that you all are going to love. It's called That Old Gay Classic Cinema. And he looks at queer themes in classic cinema, like Vertigo, The Wizard of Oz, Sleeping Beauty, Mary Poppins, 101 Dalmatians, Hello Dolly. The list can go on and on and on. So follow him on Instagram at That Old Gay Classic Cinema. You can listen to his podcast on Apple and Spotify. And he also is on the premiere episode of our Queer as Folk podcast, where I'm re-watching every episode of Queer as Folk from 2000. And the episodes come out bi-weekly. So make sure you listen to his episode with me. And he's launching a rewatch show of Smash, where they're putting on a Marilyn Monroe musical. So he's going to be joined by co-hosts, a lot who are in the Broadway and theater industry, and I'm going to be on his first episode. So without further ado, get listening to That Old Gay Classic Cinema. Enjoy. By the way, it's so fascinating. Um, We have seven hours of recordings of my grandparents' stories. And a little over six hours is my grandfather and about like 30 to 40 minutes is my grandmother. And um, what that meant for me as a writer was I don't think I could write my grandfather's story because he was a really good raconteur and he just told everything. Whereas my grandmother was a woman of few but emphatic words. And she gave me like the broad outlines and a couple of like spicy nuggets And then I, as the fiction writer, had to go in and fill in the rest if I wanted to figure out what was the rest of that story. Um, You know, and the kind of the the juiciest tidbit was she talks about that picture of her in full male drag and she describes it, but then she doesn't Mm -hmm. explain it. And it's lost to history. So I had to invent my own story of like, how did she end up uh, dressed that way? I don't know, maybe a little mystery is good. Yeah, no, the mystery, it's like, you finding that picture, then crafting, that's, right? You need that spark. It's almost, you need yeah. that. In your case, it was a physical manifestation of her ambiguity. And I mean, my Nana, my dad's mom, I mean, she passed away right at the beginning of the pandemic, but thankfully I was mm-hmm. able to have final conversations with her about her childhood. And like, in the end of someone's life, like I think when they know that they're passing away, I believe that they then want to unload their life to the next generation, um, or at least that's how I interpreted it. And my Nana, she opened up about her mother, Esther, 
Esther Cairo. That was my great grandma. And I mean, first of all, that her name Esther is very yeah, um, no way. yeah. Jewish coded. But she, my Nana said, oh, yes, I remember when my mom took me to a neighbor Shiva. And I was like, oh, I thought you were Catholic. And she said, well, my mom was really close to our neighbor, our Jewish neighbor, and like knew the customs. And I'm like, okay. So it's like starting to, again, I think a narrative that's not told, but you find it in your book that you address it, Aaron, is those who were Jewish who then converted, or if they could get into America, you know, it wasn't always... Um, I don't want to say they lied because I don't like to try to pass judgment, but if you were able to eventually assimilate, there was assimilation happening and, you know, reckoning that right now thinking, okay, the generation, when we're reading your novel, like at least when I read your novel, it starts to, I'm allowed to see my ancestors in a way of them, you know, still practicing Judaism but like, how do I now see what Judaism is to me? And it mm. isn't just a simple um, one size fits all, right? Like I do believe that you create religion in your own light and way that makes sense. But my final question yes. is after finishing Hotel Cuba, how did you see, you know, your own Jewish self how did you reflect on your Judaism after finishing Hotel Cuba? Hmm. You know, it's so interesting because my grandparents were uh, very uh, traditional. They were not Orthodox, but they were conservative Jews. Um, they would never eat anything that was like not kosher. They went to synagogue regularly. They believe very strongly in keeping up the traditions and the old ways. Um, and interestingly, that became a divide between them and other people in their family who wanted to be more modern and more assimilated. Um, I am not uh, traditionally observant, uh, but I think of my grandparents' sacrifice to come here. And I think of how they worked so hard to come here to give, that gave me the choice of how I want to live my life and uh, to be free in that way. And perhaps it wasn't even in a way that they intended. Um, you know, I still identify very strongly as, as Jewish, you know, culturally, even religiously, although not, you know, you know, you won't see me growing a beard and like, not in that sense. Um, but, uh, but the, the sort of, a lot of the, like the lessons of Jewish spirituality are very important to me, the rituals, the, uh, the holidays, you know, and they're, uh, they're meaningful. It's interesting. Um, they're meaningful to me, not necessarily. And like, I get like brownie points every time, like I light a candle or something. They're meaningful to me as a, uh, as an action of and in itself, you know, it, it's like exercising at the gym, you know, it's not like, um, you're doing a homework assignment. It's just hopefully, ideally, it's something that like, you feel better as you do it, you know, it gets the adrenaline going. It's something that, you know, it, it has an effect on you through the doing of it. Um, so that's how I, I uh, relate to my Jewish identity religiously. And then um, ethnically and culturally, I just, you know, I think about the fact that my grandparents left home and everybody that they left behind were killed in the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. Every single one, their entire village was destroyed. You know, the Nazis came to town one day and they just shot all the men. And then a year later they came back and they shot all the women and the children. 
in, in the same spot. So, you know, and, and, and think about, you know, think about if you had to leave your parents and knowing that you would never see them again, but the letters are going back and forth. And then one day the letters stop coming and then you find out why, you know, and you weren't there. I mean, that's, that's so much to bear. And, uh, for a long time, I think I took that for granted. And by writing this story and figuring out how would this journey have worked again, how would you wash your hands in the boat? When you get off at the docks, what do you do next? What do you do for work? And then how do you get from there to America? Seeing like the practical steps of it, it brought me closer uh, and gave me a greater understanding of what they might have been through. Um, and I'm, I'm so grateful that I had that opportunity. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, just thank you for bringing your book into existence. And if anything, I find that um, Jewish culture, arts and culture are so central. Like why Broadway or why writing and comedy even? I mean, comedians, there's a whole tradition and like the Catskills, the Borscht yeah. Belt, all of that. Um that there's such because of maybe the loss like the immense loss that has happened i mean i think this is the um analogous with the queer community like with hiv AIDS. and aids yeah. right yeah. that then you latch right. onto your arts and culture even stronger to tell the story right. and to find humor and levity and try to process grief and trauma so you know, there's so much of all of that in your novel. And I thank you for that, Aaron. And it's just been such a wonderful conversation with you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I had such a blast. Yes. Okay. Well, and everyone out there, how can they, you know, need to, you need to plug yourself now, Aaron, how can they follow you? Instagram. I know you have an Instagram, so how can they follow yeah. you there? So you can go right to my website, AaronHamburger.com, and you will see links there to my Facebook, to my, what is it? I don't know if it's Twitter or X or whatever the heck it is, um, and Instagram as well. I'm on all three of those things. I'm on LinkedIn too. You can find me there. Uh, so uh, yeah, please follow me and uh, I'll keep you posted with everything I'm doing. Great. Oh, and also, you know, make sure you get your hands on Hotel Cuba. I have the link to Aaron's website for all of the things. Um, and there's also an excellent audiobook too of Hotel yes. Cuba. Yes, the audio reader. In fact, uh, when the book came out, um, I, I hadn't heard the whole audio version. And so I started listening to it and I got so caught up in it. I was like, what happens next? And I was like, wait a minute, I wrote this. I know what happens next, but she does such a good job of, of bringing it to life. And I actually got to meet her for the first time at one of my events in New York. And it was really, that was really special. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. So yes, everyone, you know, get your hands on everything Aaron Hamburger related. And um, I was telling Aaron, I know I'll have him back here in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room eventually. We'll figure it out. Um, but it's wonderful to have you here. And, you know, everyone, make sure that you follow Aaron. You need to see all his cooking, too. Aaron is an amazing yes. baker. I eventually need one of the cupcakes that you make. Okay. So. <laughs> They're amazing. But he like deal. even brings them to book clubs, which is so sweet. Now yes. that's a match. That's a true match. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much, Aaron. Thanks, Andrew. It's always a pleasure. Yes. Okay. Bye, Aaron. Bye bye.
Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Rimby. I want to thank you so much for listening to the ITBR and TCIA episodes. Make sure if you don't, follow, rate, and review us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Also, make sure you follow ITBR on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and TCIA on TikTok and Instagram at True Crime and Academia. Also, we have a brand new Patreon membership system. So I just want to explain it to you all quickly. So if you want to become an ITBR student, it is $5 a month. You get ad-free ITBR and TCIA episodes and video interviews. If you want to become an ITBR professor for $10 a month, you get all of those ad-free benefits, but you also get access to both the ITBR and TCIA book clubs. You can join both book clubs, get ad-free episodes, plus you're going to get all of our extra video episodes. So I am re-watching Queer as Folk. Christian Garcia from That Old Gay Classic Cinema is joining us, and he's re-watching Smash. Um, Mary is going to start to re-watch shows as well. You even get access to what I'm calling the ITBR teaches. So if I'm recapping a movie or a TV show, including Barbie, um, Halloween movies and horror films, you get access to that as well. And then I also am offering consultation services. So for $30, you get your first initial consultation with me. It's a one hour private Zoom. I will help create a, your podcast, your media brand. How do you navigate academia as an undergrad or a grad student? Do you need help with technology? It could be teaching tools, Spotify for podcasters, video editor so software. Do you want to expand your social media presence as an artist, writer, podcaster, or academic? Do you want help on how to create a public humanities identity like I've created for myself? So I now I'm offering that consultation service. You can find more info about it on Patreon. And you also can join our book clubs. If you want to just join the ITBR book club or the TCIA book club, you can do that for $4 a month. Patreon.com backslash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. That is P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Thanks to the team, Mary DePippi, our chief contributor. And thank you to our two new interns from Stony Brook University, Jonathan and Sarah. Bye, everyone. Until next time.